Every level is for educational purposes only. Roxas and Jamie always try to provide accurate information. The law is like what I'm willing to eat. It's always changing. This podcast is not legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship, but they promised me it would be a lot of fun for you. Can I get my candy now? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Chalk and Gavel, where we explore how the law shapes education one case at a time. I'm Chris Thomas. And I'm Jamie Cutlets. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about a case which is an example of how much control teachers actually have in shaping the curriculum with a case called Boring versus Buncombe County. And I promise you, folks, this case will be anything but boring. <laughs> uh, let's not make promises we can't keep. Where's your sense of adventure, Chris? <laughs> I'm a lawyer. I don't have one. <laughs> That's funny. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Happy New Year to all of you out there. Before we dive into our Boring versus Buncombe County case, Chris, what's our first bell ringer of 2024? So our bell ringer today comes from the Office for Civil Rights from the U.S. Department of Education. Uh, they recently released their 2020-2021 data from the Civil Rights Data Collection. So the Civil Rights Data Collection, uh, CRDC, is this massive data collecting effort that the Office for Civil Rights, OCR, does every two years, where they basically survey all of the schools and school districts in the country to kind of collect this really important information about civil rights measures and kind of access to educational opportunities and all of this other really important information uh, that they can aggregate and kind of look at these big national trends. So we just got the 2020-2021 data released by OCR. And so this covers something like almost 100,000 schools and over 17,000 school districts. And they collect data on a ton of different stuff like suspensions, expulsions, um, corporal punishment. They also collect data on allegations of harassment and bullying, things like curricular offerings, all of this information. And then they'll disaggregate it based on race, sex, other markers of difference like disability, things like that. So it gives us a really nuanced picture of these national trends about what's going on in American public schools. So really exciting that we've got this, this new information. Some big kind of high level things that I'll highlight from the kind of the initial reports. And there's so much here that it's really hard to kind of dig into all of it. Like I said, they collected data from over 100,000 schools. And I think you can go in and actually look at how specific schools, what they reported. Mm. So like if you wanted to find your school, you could go see oh. what they reported for the, the civil rights data collection. Nice. So there's a great website that OCR puts out and kind of keeps updated. And the other cool thing is you can also look at historical trends. Yeah. Uh, so they do this every two years, and I think they skipped the last one because of COVID. But you can look and see where your school has kind of developed, mm. uh, which is super cool. And yeah. So... This is just a really cool resource. Yeah, that's great. So this one was done in the 2020-2021 school year, you know, right sort of at the beginning of COVID, right? Uh, Yeah, yeah. 
COVID's kind of like a black hole of time, so I'm trying to think. Yeah, right. <laughs> like during the first year, full school year yeah. of COVID, where there was mm-hmm. a lot of remote learning taking place. Right. So it gives us a really interesting picture, too, about kind of what impacts that might have had on kind of this larger system of public education mm-hmm. across the country. Right. Um, so just to kind of give you a couple big kind of high-level takeaways from some of the press releases that the Department of Education put out. So they report that there were over 42,500 allegations of harassment or bullying in American public schools during that time. Mm. And of those, 40% were based on sex, 29% were on the basis of race, 19% were on the basis of sexual orientation, 9% on disability, and 3% were based on religion. Wow. Yeah. So just like really interesting stuff like that where, you know, they can basically look at these national trends. Mm -hmm. So there were reports of approximately 274,700 hundred incidents of school offenses, 78% of which were threats of physical attack without a weapon. Wow. That's a really big number. I thought, I would think other things would go before that, but I guess threats are a really significant one. I won't, I won't go through and highlight all this, but uh, this last statistic I think is really interesting. About 786,600 students in K-12 received one or more in-school suspensions and about 638,700 received out-of-school suspensions and 28,300 were expelled. Uh, And then there are some disproportionalities based on sex and race within that. So both white and black boys were overrepresented in K-12 school discipline outcomes, uh, but black boys were nearly two times more likely than white boys to receive an out-of-school suspension or expulsion. And You know, I think that's one of the most interesting things about the CRDC is just it allows us to look at those big national trends to identify kind of those systemic inequalities. Yeah. Wow. These are going to be some good data to pour through. Is data singular or plural? Oh, the age old (laughs) debate. Um, uh, So go check out these data. But really, I I do encourage you, like, go poke (laughs) around. It's really fun. Right. There's a lot of stuff out there. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of very interesting takeaways from there. Thank you for finding that one, Chris. All right, let's talk a little bit about Boring versus Buncombe County. How about that? Let's do it. We're going back to uh, North Carolina, I see. North Carolina in the 90s. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know, Buncombe County is in western North Carolina in the mountains. It's where Asheville is. So the lovely, lovely town of Asheville is Buncombe County. And in Buncombe County, there is a high school called Charles D. Owen High School. <laughs> or at least there was back in the I 90s. was going to say, is it still there? <laughs> I don't know. I have to check on that one. Um, so in the fall of 1991, so the high level on this case here is we've got a drama teacher who selected a play to perform. Can we really quickly talk about the irony of a drama teacher named Boring? <laughs> well, apparently she was very... Uh, <laughs> Uh, She had been around the school for a while, like 12 years at this point. She'd won tons of awards, so she might not have been boring. Yeah, so what we've got here is we've got a drama teacher named Margaret Boring, and she picked a pretty controversial play to perform with uh, one of her advanced acting classes. And essentially, some of the content was questionable, according to the school and to some parents. And the play had to get modified. And, you know, the end result was stuff happened between Boring and the school over the course of the year. 
And the next year, she was transferred to a middle school, which she considered to be a demotion. And that's what led to this case. So let's get into the details here, because this is all about how much academic freedom teachers actually have in shaping the curriculum. If, uh, if this is too long, didn't read, hmm. the answer is you don't have much. <laughs> uh, so, okay, so here's what happened. In 1991, she chose a play called Independence for her four students in her advanced acting class to perform in an annual statewide competition. She said that the play, quote, powerfully depicts the dynamics within a dysfunctional single-parent family, which includes a divorced mother and three daughters, one lesbian, and uh, another one of the daughters was pregnant with an illegitimate child. So she said that she notified the school principal, as she did every year, that she had chosen this play for this competition. She doesn't say anything about how much information she gave to the principal about the play other than the name. So it's entirely likely that she just told the principal, hey, I'm going to be doing this play independence for the competition. And that could have been the end of the conversation Mm -hmm. for all we know, right? Is that what she usually did? Like, was that standard practice? According to the court report, she said that she notified the school principal as she did every year. Okay. So, so basically following kind of standard practice here. The idea of like, hey, I let you know we're doing a play called Independence, which by the name alone, no one's going to take issue with a play called Independence, right? Right. Yes. For all the principal knows, it's a 4th of July thing, right? Like, you know, it doesn't go into much detail about, you know, how much information she typically shared with the principal Mm, every year. So, you know, it basically just says that she doesn't allege that she gave the principal any information about the play other than the name. So the play ended up getting performed in a regional competition and it won 17 out of 21 awards. So this is a a big deal, right? That seems really good. Right. I I don't know if there were two or two dozen competitors, but like anytime you basically clean house and win three-fourths of the awards. Yeah, right? Something seems to be going well. Right, right. So clearly, very well-received play. Before the play got to the state finals... A scene from the play was performed for an English class in the school, and Margaret Boring informed the teacher of that English class that the play contained mature subject matter and suggested to the teacher that the students get permission slips from their parents to see that scene from the play. Now, in the court report, all that it says is that Boring suggested to the teacher Mm-hmm. that they get permission slips. It doesn't indicate whether or not the teacher took that suggestion or not. Right. So that, I mean, for all we know, that could be a critical piece that's missing to this story. So what happened was they performed that scene in the English class and a parent of one of the students in that class did not like the content that was performed and complained to the principal. The principal at the time, his name was Fred Ivy, asked boring for a copy of the script at that point. So it seems to indicate that he was unaware of the content of this play, right? Sure. Until a parent from that English class complained. So I'm torn here because obviously the content of the play is going to be the crux of the issue, right? 
But if she let him know what play she was doing and he just kind of didn't acknowledge it or didn't do his due diligence, like the teacher mm-hmm. uh, boring here has been kind of operating under the assumption like, well, I let you know and I let you know and you didn't say anything. So I'm just going to keep doing it. Right. Like I let you know, I tell you the name of the play every year and nothing, and it's never come back to bite me. Mm-hmm. So I just did the same thing that I always do. Right. And you didn't say anything. Yeah. For all I know, you, I tell you the name of the play and you go off and you research it. So yeah, there's a potential issue here with the principal maybe not doing his due diligence. Mm-hmm. At the same time, maybe there's an issue with the teacher who's just like, I'm going to be very selective with what I communicate. Right. And, you know, taking the, uh, the well, maybe it's better to ask for forgiveness rather than permission. Kind sure. Of yeah. So maybe she tried to sneak one in there. Yeah. Who knows? Right. Who knows? So principal basically said at that point, after reading the script, said that the students could not perform the play at the state competition. So that was that. Okay. Even after they cleaned house at districts. That's what I'm guessing. It's difficult to sort of understand the timeline of when the various Mm -hmm. performances took place. So at that point, when the principal said, you can't perform this play at the state competition, Margaret Boring and parents of the actresses who were in the play met with the principal and they urged him not to cancel the production. So we've got Boring, her four students, and the parents of those students who are advocating for this play and its heavy material, its controversial subject matter. So what happened was Ivy agreed to let the play proceed in a modified state. So okay. they took out certain portions. And the record or the, the court's opinion here doesn't say what portions they asked them to take out, does it? No, it doesn't okay. indicate anything like that. Yeah. So we have no idea how sterile they made the... Sure. You know, they made it. Mm-hmm. Um, have you read Independence? I actually... No, I haven't. Me either. No, I, I, I have not heard of it until this case. No. Um, so they ended up going to the state competition and they won second place there. Hey, good job. Yeah. We are assuming, based on what is written in the court report here, that it was performed with those pieces edited out. Sure. That's what we're assuming it. We don't know for sure. Anyway, so that was the issue with the play Independence. And, you know, there seems to be one other issue here that was unrelated that indicated that there was some tension between Boring and the principal. And the following summer in 1992, when the principal requested that Boring be transferred, he cited personal conflicts resulting from actions she initiated during the course of the school year. Hard to say what, you know, whether it was the independence play or this other thing that where there was some tension between the two. But when the superintendent approved the transfer, it was specifically stated that she had failed to follow the school system's controversial materials policy in producing the play. Okay. Boring's response to that was that the the controversial materials policy is in place to give parents some control over the materials to which their children are exposed in school. And she basically said that at the time of that play's production, the controversial materials policy didn't cover dramatic presentations. Hmm. And it was only after that that the school's policy was amended to include dramatic presentations. Which someone realized was an oopsie and was like, hey, we should change yep. that now. Exactly. So basically, Boring appealed the transfer to the Board of Education. 
They held a hearing and the board upheld the transfer in that hearing. It also seems like this might have gotten out into the public, which, I mean, you know, these things do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there may have been some sort of public discussion out there about Boring's selection of the play and how it was obscene and that she may be immoral and and whatever. Mm -hmm. So there was a question of whether or not the board was kind of biased against Oh, sure, sure. Against her. Because those are their voters, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, um, before I turn it over to you, Chris, to talk about how the courts kind of responded to this, one of the reasons we selected the case was because the content of this play is content that seems to also have been getting sort of renewed attention Mm -hmm. in school curricula over the last few years. Sure. Right. You know, so it's it's not like you can't look at this case and say, wow, you know, well, the stuff that bothered them 30 years ago, like, you know, this it's 30 years later now. Mm-hmm. Things change. Right. And while, yes, th- many things do change, the content of this particular play is something that has made its way to the forefront of school curriculum discussions in Mm -hmm. recent years. Yeah, yeah. You can imagine a play with this content. Like if someone put this play on now, I imagine it would receive similar pushback in in certain communities, for sure. Like in Florida, you know, we've we've got the parental rights bill, uh, which is kind of colloquially called the Don't Say Gay bill. And there was a teacher who got a complaint against her for showing the movie Strange World, uh, which is a Disney film that involves a character who is gay. And huh. she got a complaint because she showed it because there's a gay character. Um, as far as I know, that complaint was dismissed before anything happened. Um, but it just kind of shows that these issues are still out there and still causing controversy. Do you think it was because of the of the gay character in the film or because it was Disney? Because you guys down there in Florida have, <laughs> have an issue with Disney. <laughs> uh, apparently. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, it, I think it's just doubly ironic. Uh, yeah that it had to be a disney movie of course yeah right um so what happened chris sure so boring gets transferred and appeals that to the board the board rules that the transfer was fine um and so boring files suit uh so she files a lawsuit in the federal district court alleging that her First Amendment rights had been violated um, because the school retaliated against her for her expression of unpopular views through the production of the play Independence. She also brings some due process claims about kind of alleged irregularities in the appeal to the board, about them kind of relying on external evidence or external considerations. She also brings some state constitutional claims, but those are not part of the appeal that we're going to talk about today. So she brings this case. Again, we're in federal court because it's a First Amendment claim, and she loses uh, at the trial court. Um, Actually, she doesn't just lose. She actually doesn't get passed a go. (laughs) So what happens is the, so a little bit about how lawsuits work. The plaintiff will file a complaint. The complaint will typically have numbered paragraphs that lay out the factual allegations and then also kind of the alleged violations of law. And then the defendant will answer that and basically say, admit these allegations, deny these allegations. 
And then that's what we call the pleadings. And so after the pleadings or during the pleadings, even one of the parties, typically the defendant, can file what's called a 12B6 motion. Uh, And a 12B6 motion is named after the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. And it's essentially a motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim upon which relief can be granted. And so all of that to say is if you file this motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim, you're basically saying that even if I accept everything that you said in this complaint, that's not enough to demonstrate that I violated the law. Okay. And that's what the school does here. The school files this 12B6 motion saying like, look, yeah, all of that stuff is true. We don't con- we don't contest any of it. Not that they don't contest any of it. They said, even if we accept that this is true, we still win as a matter of law. Oh, okay. And so essentially the lower court agrees with that and says, yeah, you know what? Even if I accept all of the well-pled allegations in this complaint, none of them rise to the level to demonstrate a violation of your First Amendment rights. Hmm. And so Boring loses at the trial court level. They dismiss the complaint, uh, which is why we have a pretty limited factual record here. Okay. Uh, we've only got the allegations in the complaint. So there's not a chance for discovery or to kind of flesh out what really happened. So, you know, when we were talking about the facts of the case and the chalk side of the story, we don't know a lot because all we've got is the complaint uh, because they didn't get past that with the motion to dismiss. Yeah. Those times when I said, we don't really know exactly what happened here Mm -hmm. or how this worked. It's because they didn't have an opportunity to take it to that place. Right. Yeah. We couldn't do a full investigation or I guess discovery where the parties investigate what happened. Yeah. Okay. So we get to the Fourth Circuit and the Fourth Circuit panel. So thinking back to our very first episode where we also dealt with the Fourth Circuit, the Fourth Circuit panel ends up reversing the district's court dismissal. So a panel of the Fourth Circuit is usually three judges uh, and they decide that, you know what, there is enough here to state a claim. We're going to reinstate the lawsuit. You can go forward with discovery and we'll see what happens. And then the Fourth Circuit decides that they want to review it on bonk. So this is our second Fourth Circuit on bonk case. <laughs> We're going to have to do some on bonks from some other circuits. But so the, the Fourth Circuit on bonk decides to hear this case and they ultimately agree with the lower court and dismiss the complaint for failure to state a claim. Um, And they're only looking at, on appeal, the First Amendment issue. So all of her claims were dismissed. She only appeals the First Amendment complaint because really that's that's kind of the strongest complaint. Yeah. So she's basically she's saying, I had a First Amendment free speech right to select this play. Essentially. Right? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So basically saying that there's a lot of different ways to phrase her First Amendment claim. The way she phrases it, Initially, it sounds like she's making a viewpoint discrimination, um, which isn't something that is picked up on appeal at all. They're just looking at whether or not she has kind of this First Amendment right within the curriculum to make curricular decisions. Right. And the majority answers that in the negative. They say, no, she does not have kind of a right to make curricular decisions. And that's where the opinion starts. The big question that kind of is determinative for this case is whose speech is this? Is the choice of a play the teacher's speech or is it the school's speech or is it something that the school has kind of exclusive control over? Right. And the majority looks at this and says, you know what, the decision about what constitutes the learning of the school, all of that stuff is curricular in nature. 
and they look to Webster's Dictionary, oh. uh, which is a thing we do a lot in law. We love dictionaries and parsing out <laughs> the meaning of words. And Webster's Dictionary at the time defined curriculum as all planned school activities, including courses of study, organized play, athletics, dramatics, clubs, and homeroom programs. And so dramatics is in the definition of curriculum, and that's enough for the court. They also look at the Supreme Court in the Hazelwood decision, uh, which we'll talk about more here in a second, where they kind of identify that those sorts of things like plays, newspapers, stuff like that could be part of the school's curriculum that the school has control over. Okay. And so essentially for the court, they said, or for the majority rather, they said the play was supervised by the teacher. It was performed at interscholastic drama competitions. It was intended to part skills. All of that points to it being curricular in nature. So therefore, this is the school's speech, not the teacher's speech. And that has implications because if it's not the teacher's speech, then we can't violate her free speech rights because she's not really the one speaking. Yes. Wow. Yeah. So they answered that question. That's not the end of it, but it pretty much sets the stage for how the majority is going to come out. Okay. And... So there's two kind of competing standards here that the court kind of flirts with applying. The first is the standard that is applicable to teacher First Amendment speech. So this is any time that a teacher is speaking, they've got certain First Amendment rights that are protected. And this is the what's often called the Pickering-Connick test. And the court looks at this and says, essentially, like, you know, we don't really need to apply this test because we already kind of determined that this isn't her speech. But it, just to kind of humor it, because we're not really sure how to adjudicate this question, because control over the curriculum is just such a complicated issue that we don't really have a good standard for it. The Supreme Court's never really taken on a case that is directly on point here. They've come close with cases like Pico. Uh, which was a school library case, or Hazelwood, which is a student journalism case. But, you know, let's pretend to apply the Pickering test and let's just see kind of how it comes out. And so the majority looks at this and says, well, you know, question number one, is this on a matter of public concern? And they say, you know what? It's not. Because a matter of public concern is something that has kind of societal significance. It's related to political, social, or other concerns that the community might have. Yeah, like complaining about my boss, my principal, is not going to be a matter of public concern. But if teacher pay has been a whole issue in the news or whatever, and you speak publicly about something like that, you could argue that that is a matter of public concern, right? Because that's right. out there in the public versus, you know, complaining about your work conditions. You know, in some cases, I think that would be a matter of public concern. Sure. But, you know, there there is a line there. Right. Right. And that's exactly what the court says. They say, you know, this isn't a matter of public concern. This is a purely private employment matter. Yeah. Um, so there's a distinction here between matters of public concern and kind of purely private matters. Yeah. Um, and here they say that the selection of curriculum is something that is completely within the authority of the school district. And, you know, a disagreement about selection of the curriculum, that's a private employment matter between that principal and that teacher. Yeah, yeah. And that's not really a matter of public concern. And that makes sense, right, a little bit, because mm -hmm. when we're looking at kind of who controls the curriculum, there's this balance between the academic freedom of the teacher on one hand right. um, versus kind of the control of the curriculum by the state or the the government on the other hand. Yeah. And this comes up a lot when we have cases like this. It's essentially like who should control the curriculum and the way courts typically kind of answer this question, whether it's a parent or whether or not it's a teacher or whether or not it's a student or somebody else challenging the curriculum is essentially like, you know, within certain constitutional safeguards, 
the school is the one that ought to determine the curriculum because the school through the school board, they're the ones who are accountable to the public. Mm. And they're the ones who are engaged in kind of this democratic deliberation to set policy. Like, uh-huh. they're the ones that we really ought to trust when it comes to setting the curriculum. Got it. And so therefore, we shouldn't allow teacher academic freedom to, you know, trump the ability of schools to set the curriculum for themselves. Right, right. And that's ultimately how the court comes down. You know, they cite to Plato, they cite to philosopher Edmund Burke, they cite to a very influential Supreme Court justice, Justice Frankfurter, all to kind of support the idea that being a public school teacher shouldn't give a teacher a first member right to, to fix the curriculum. Cool. So, like, is that the end of it? Never. <laughs> uh, so the other uh, standard that they flirt with applying is the Hazelwood standard. So this comes from a Supreme Court case of uh, involving student journalists. Yeah, the Hazel. I think we're going to do the Hazelwood case too. Yeah, we definitely should. Don't we have that scheduled? Because that one's a fun one it's too. A, it is a really fun one. Yeah. So Hazelwood is this case involving student newspapers. And essentially it was these students who kind of were told by the principal that they couldn't publish two articles, one on kind of the impacts of divorce on students and another about kind of teenage pregnancy. And the principal said, you can't publish those. Students said, yes, we can. We've got a First Amendment right. Gets all the way up to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court says, you know what? As long as the school is acting reasonably, they can control that kind of curricular-related speech. Yeah, so similar, like, you can't edit the content of that paper just because you disagree with what it's saying. You have to have a reasonable, legitimate pedagogical concern Mm -hmm. in order to censor that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, you school, you have that right. Right. Yeah. So it's a, it's the school authority and they only violate the potential First Amendment rights of others if they act in an unreasonable way. So like right. you said, their decisions have to be rationally related to a legitimate pedagogical interest. Yeah. Um, and here the court makes what I think is a pretty attenuated argument. So they apply that standard and say, like, you know, if we were going to apply the Hazelwood, here's what we would say. So the court says that the school has a legitimate pedagogical interest in the makeup of the curriculum of the school, including the inclusion of the play independence. So the, the court says the school has an interest in setting the curriculum. So that's okay. a legitimate pedagogical interest. Okay. But, and this is something the primary dissent picks up, is that if you take that and apply it to the Hazelwood standard, that essentially says that every time they make a curricular decision, it's justified by their interest in making curricular decisions. <laughs> it's like a, a visual of like a, a dog chasing its tail in circles, right? Like Right. Yeah, yeah. It's the definition of circular logic. Yeah. The action is justified by your interest in taking the action. (laughs) And that's like the dissent points that out. They're like, look, the majority maintains that because pedagogical is defined as educational, any and every curricular decision made by school administrators is by definition a legitimate pedagogical concern and thus constitutionally acceptable. And so, you know, that that's how the majority would come out with it. I don't think that's yeah. the best reasoning. And that's something that, like, the both dissents kind of pick up on here, yeah. which is, you know, if we really wanted to apply Hazelwood, we need to know more. We need to know why the school did what they did. Because that's completely absent in the majority opinion. The majority's opinion yeah. doesn't care why the school did what it did. It basically just says that teachers don't have the authority to control the curriculum. But it never gets that second question about, like, or it never 
I suppose, adequately answers that second question about whether or not right. the school's action were rationally related to a legitimate pedagogical interest here. Got because it. we kind of infer why the school did what they did. It caused this controversy. It had these controversial subjects. Yeah. But it's never spelled out. And the school never tries to defend its decision at this point because they don't have to yet. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. this is a motion to dismiss it's based on what's on the complaint and what was in the answer. And the answer, you know, you you set out affirmative defenses, but like an affirmative defense is a, a very specific kind of thing. So essentially what happened here was because this was a motion to dismiss, the court wasn't able to really dig into the full facts of this case and establish some of the goalposts that we often see courts establish around a particular issue, right? Right. Yeah. And for the majority, you know, they kind of say we didn't really need those because we had enough here to 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 say you've got nothing, Margaret Boring. Right. That everything you said doesn't establish a violation of the First Amendment. This is a case that is a good example, you know, like some previous cases that we've covered already that, you know, like the Brandy Levy case, you know, it doesn't give us all of the goalposts that we might want, but it gives us a good example of like, you should be careful. You should really investigate your procedures. You should really ensure that those procedures are appropriate. So for example, like, what can we take away from this case? Well, obviously something that the school took away from this case right afterwards was, hey, our controversial materials policy didn't cover every subject. Maybe it should. Right. And also there's probably a question about whether or not they were actually implementing the policy. Exactly. Because it could have just been on paper and the practice was just, oh yeah, just let me know. Right. It's fine until it's not. Yeah. And if you're a school administrator, like that's on you, you know, so you've got to be very clear with your teachers. Mm -hmm. There should be some guidelines and some understandings in your mm -hmm. school around how to select those things and who to involve and when, when you are selecting those resources. But at the end of the day, like, you know, you've got to realize as a teacher, you don't have the freedom to select whatever you want. Right. It's often said that the school hires teachers' curricular speech. Yeah. And so because the school is the one hiring it, it's the school's speech at the end of the day. Yeah. The other thing, though, is like this is not to sort of emphasize the fact that teachers, you have no autonomy in the classroom. Teachers, you have no expertise. Your job is to just go in there and do exactly what the state tells you to do. You know, like it's, <laughs> that is so not what we're right. advocating for, right? Like Quite the opposite, actually. Exactly. And that's one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast is if you have the knowledge about where those goalposts are and where those boundaries are, then you are much more empowered mm -hmm. to be able to be as flexible as you want to be and stay within those boundaries, right? Right. Without that knowledge, you're almost forced to just do what you're told. Right. Or to put your head down and, and not take risks, right? Yeah. You know, and as long as you are being safe, as long as you are staying within the bounds of the law, we want teachers to take risks. Mm -hmm. We want teachers to think outside the box. We want school administrators to get creative, right? Right. Yeah. So use these podcasts <laughs> as a resource to help you establish where those goalposts are and then have fun with it. Get creative. Take risks. Right. And yeah, I think that's really important to kind of note is the teacher First Amendment rights issue that kind of gets addressed here. Like we're talking specifically about curricular decisions. Yeah. And curricular decisions are very different 
than other kinds of teacher speech. So if boring in this case just kind of accepts the principal's determination about censoring the play and then goes on social media or, I don't know, writes an op-ed or something like that because this is the 90s. But if she speaks out publicly and says, hey, I disagree with what the school did and here's why, that has a much better chance of being protected speech because she's speaking on a matter of public concern. Right. The adoption of the curriculum. Yeah. You know, there we'd have to go to the balancing test to see if the employer could point to like adverse impacts on their operations and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, But yeah. if it's outside of the curricular speech, teachers do still have those speech rights. Sure. And, and the other thing is if you feel very strongly as a teacher that you've got a particular resource or a tool that you feel is appropriate from a pedagogical standpoint, if you have a good open dialogue with your administrator. I'm just thinking like another way that this could have gone is, hey, principal, I'm thinking about doing this play. Now, it's got some controversial material in it. I would love to discuss that with you. And let's see what we can do here. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, the principal is going to have to basically decide, is this stuff pedagogically appropriate? Is this stuff developmentally appropriate? When it comes to those kinds of issues, kind of as we discussed with the Pico case and things like that, those are some of the things that the courts are going to look at, right? And if you feel as an administrator, like, all right, I feel like this could be developmentally appropriate. I feel like this could be curricularly appropriate pedagogically appropriate, blah, blah, blah. Let's get around the potential complications with this by ensuring that this kind of communication goes out before the play is done, that these Mm -hmm. permission slips get done, that you ask, you know, like there, there are steps that you could take that might have not resulted in even a modification of the play at the state level. Right. Right. Like we don't know. But if there's a healthy dialogue Mm -hmm. between the principal and the teacher about something like this, it's the same thing that we always say to our aspiring school leaders when it comes to in our law classes, right? When we say... It depends. It depends. But we also also (laughs) say to them, if you're going to speak to the... If you've got an issue and you go speak to the attorney, don't say, I've got an issue. What should I do? You should say... I've got an issue. Here's how I want to handle it. Because mm-hmm. you, as the school, as the teacher, as the, as the school principal, you are the educator here. Right. You are more of the expert when it comes to education and when it comes to children and things like that. And so you probably have in your head a certain way that you think you should handle that issue because it's going to be in the best interest of the school and the kids. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you just ask a lawyer what to do, they're going to give you very concrete parameters that are going to be like, you are going to be in your safe zone. We're very risk adverse. Right. You said that at the top of the episode, like, you know, where's your sense of adventure, Chris? <laughs> um, you know, which is why we say decide what you want to do, what you feel the right mm-hmm. thing is to do, and then speak to the attorney and say, here's what I want to do. How can I make sure Mm -hmm. that I can do this and stay within the bounds of the law? And so the same thing kind of applies with the teacher, you know, like as a teacher, go to your administrator and say, here's what I want to do. Here's why I want to do it. Can we do it? And if so, how? Help me. Right. Right. Don't ask can, ask how. Ooh, I think we should end on that. That's a good high note to end on, right? A little nugget of wisdom right there. Yeah, exactly. Um... 
Well, another great case, another great episode. What's our homework, Chris? All right, your homework. Thank you so much for listening. You can find Shocking Gavel wherever you get your podcasts. Please like, review, um, subscribe. If you can continue to help us spread the word, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your colleagues, tell your, your Valentine's. I don't think we're that close to Valentine's Day, but it's never too early to start thinking about it. Um, if you haven't sent out your Christmas cards yet, uh, put our flyer in there. <laughs> you better get on it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Is that everything? I think that's I've, everything. I think that's everything? everything. You got it all. Join us next time, everybody. I'm Chris Thomas. And I'm Jamie Cutlets. And this has been Chalk and Gavel. Chalk and Gavel.